morning. We're going to finish up chapter 21 of Luke this morning, so if you will, grab your Bibles and head over to, you guessed it, Luke 21. But just the last two verses is where we're going to be. And uh, as you're finding your way over there, I'm going to tell you a, a story. It's probably best that I tell this story while college students are mostly, most of you are out of town, most of you, most of them are out of town. Um, anyway, uh, while I was in college, myself and seven of my good friends began a fake fraternity that we called the Alliance. Uh, it began as a bit of a joke. We had some friends in a fraternity called Bucks, and um, we'd tease them about them having to pay for their fraternity. And so we had a free fraternity, and we'd have uh, even our chapter meetings and stuff like that, only when our friend, other friends would come over. Like, We're in chapter meeting right now. Um, and it was just a way to mess with them, but before long, it kind of became this thing where we'd actually go out and do all these crazy fun stuff at time, uh, you know, together as a big fraternity. <clears throat> and, and so in the middle of uh, campus, there's this big water fountain where uh, people would occasionally just place objects into it. And since we had a washing machine that had just recently broken, uh, we had no, you know, reasonable use for it. And since uh, at this point in our life, our prefrontal frontal cortex, uh, the part of your brain that keeps you from doing impulsive things, was not fully formed. In fact, we were a good five, six years away from it uh, being fully formed. Uh, in other words, we were young and, and foolish, uh, and so we decided to go on this midnight mission. We were, we were going to dump this washing machine into this fountain. I don't know why. It doesn't make much sense, but that's what we're going to do. So anyway, after sneaking through the shadows, uh, we live just off campus, sneaking through the shadows. Uh, we put the washing machine in there, and we sit back, and we're just looking. Wow, look at this amazing work we did here. Um, and just then, campus security comes around this corner, and they yell something. We all panic. We run different directions, scattering everywhere. Um, and like we said, we lived just off campus. We all got back together at home, and it was everyone but one guy. This one guy missing named Ben, and before long, we started to get worried. Did Ben get hurt? Is he, you know, crying in the bushes somewhere, and we need to go find him? Uh, and, and before long, we were just getting ready to go back outside when the doorbell rang, and we opened the door, and there was Ben standing there. And do you know who was standing with him? Campus security, right? Uh, he had led them right to our house, and we weren't really mad, but uh, he had betrayed us, and we let him know that for the rest of, well, to this day. Uh, in fact, uh, the next morning, then, we had to go and meet with a dean of some sort. I can't remember the specific aspect. <clears throat> anyway... <clears throat> we apologize, but at some point she threatened to revoke our fraternity's charter. And at, at this moment, we're all sideways looking at each other like, <clears throat> you know, fake fraternities don't have charters. Uh, we didn't point that out to her. Instead, we just promised we'd never mess with the fountain again, and we never did. Uh, but from that day forward, we referred to Ben by the name of another famous traitor. Any, any guesses? <clears throat> Judas? No. Close. Thank you. His name is Ben. We had to go with Benedict Arnold. Uh, now, Benedict Arnold's betrayal was against his, his country, a little bigger than our Ben's betrayal. Uh, September 21st, in uh, 1780, he betrayed his own country, the United States, uh, by giving information about the whereabouts of American soldiers and supplies uh, before ultimately making this deal with, which would have given up or to give up uh, West Point to the British, right? The evils, except for Tim thinks they're okay. Um, and he did, it, he did it for roughly $13,000, you know, it wasn't dollars, but that's what it was, uh, equivalent to, in, in a position in the British Army. His friends were absolutely shocked that he would betray, the, the, you know, his, his buddies who had been fighting alongside just, just earlier before, 
uh, months earlier before, and, and you have this question, how does a man get to the point of betrayal like that? Now, in the case of Benedict Arnold, the real Benedict Arnold, he, he was successful and wealthy. Benedict and his wife, Peggy, not the one from Hamilton, different Peggy, uh, lived a life of luxury, and, and they loved that way of life. And later, when he was injured in, in, in a battle, and he began being passed over for some prom- promotions, and thus his prestige and his wealth was, uh, went, went down from that, he, his expectation of what serving America should have provided for him uh, did not get met, and he became bitter, and his love for money grew, and, and, and most believe that's the reason he betrayed his friends and his country. Now, still, Benedict Arnold, my friend, and Benedict Arnold, the, the real one in history, wasn't the worst betrayer in the history of the world. That undesirable title goes to who? Now you get back to Judas. And that's who we're going to be seeing uh, that betrayal, the initial aspect of that betrayal in our passage today. So we're going to be reading uh, the last two verses. Verse, uh, Luke 21, verse 37 will be our, our first verse today. So let's start there. Follow along as I read. Uh, he at the beginning here is Jesus. And every day he was teaching in the temple. But at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Now, the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered to Judas, called Iscariot, who was, a, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them, and they were glad and agreed to give him money, so he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, today as we reflect on the men who plotted to kill your son, and particularly on a man named Judas who was willing to betray our Lord, as we reflect on this, please hold us back from self-righteous thoughts while at the same time uh, give us a deep understanding of, of, of just how evil this betrayal was And so we're asking you to bring light to our understanding, as we are always asking when we come to your word. But please, Lord, this morning, give us us understanding. Uh, In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So if you put this into what's going on in in the history of of the ministry of Jesus, this is the last week of his pre-resurrection life, and in those last verses of chapter 21, we we see the masses of people are continuing to come to Jesus and continuing to listen to him teach, uh, and and they appear to be loving it, right? Uh, And at night, he and his disciples are retreating back to the Mount of Olives, to to this desolate place where where they can rest and uh, where they're away from the crowds. And as chapter 22 begins, then Luke mentions the Passover, and this is the first time that Luke ever mentions the Passover. Uh, The Passover is this, this feast, this festival, remembering how God had delivered his people from Egyptian captivity. Uh, and, and the shocking part of this passage right from the start is, is this, that while what, what Jesus is in the temple teaching, right, uh, and while most of the Jews are, are listening to Jesus or they're preparing themselves for this Passover time, uh, where were the religious leaders? What were they doing? They are plotting to murder Jesus. They are coming up with a plan to kill the very Messiah that God has promised, the very Messiah that they've been praying for and, and hoping for and, and waiting for. And, and the question arises, why? why? Why would they be doing this at this moment? Because 
as the people listened to Jesus, their, their authority what was being threatened. And as Jesus taught truth about the kingdom of God, what we're seeing is that the corruption of these leaders is, is being brought to light and it's not going well for them. Uh, if we want to name it, and we do want to name it, that at the very heart what's going on is, is pride in, the, in these religious leaders. And so instead of, of worshiping Jesus, and, and instead of spreading the good news that the Messiah that we've been waiting for, that has come to rescue God's people from their sin, instead of that, they are conspiring to murder Christ. One thing we learn here, sadly, is that official religious titles and positions and fame does not prevent spiritual leaders from theological blindness nor moral sin. Uh, unfortunately, we are all too aware of this today. Over the years, you that are older will recognize uh, some of these names, but you've seen them in the headlines. Guys like Jimmy Swaggart or Ted Haggart, uh, Bernard, Bernard Law, who was one of the many Roman Catholic priests who covered up sexual abuse, Darren Patrick, uh, Mark Driscoll, and most recently, maybe the most heartbreaking, at least the most uh, raw of all, Rabbi Zacharias, uh, Positions of leadership do not always equate to lives of godliness, and fame does not negate the need of God's grace. The leaders in Jesus' day want to kill him, and, and yet they know that Jesus is well regarded by the crowds, by many of those who have come to Jerusalem, which is just a massive amount of people at this, this time because it's Passover week. They, they, they feared, and this was their fear, they feared if they just grabbed Jesus off the street, right? He's walking, you think, we see him all day, why don't they just grab him one of those times? If they'd done that, their fear is that there's going to be this revolt against the masses, against them rather, from the masses. And so they need to find him at night when he's all alone, when he's away from the crowds, when there's no one to, to start a riot or anything like that. But they had no way of doing that since Jesus, you know, most likely didn't go to their retreat spot until it was already dark or getting very dark, and so it was difficult to follow. Whatever reason, they couldn't find it, right? And so here they are pondering how, how to learn to find out where is Jesus, how can we get him with, without getting this revolt. Uh, and in verse 3, Luke pulls back the veil and he shows us there is something supernatural, there is something sinister and dark happening with one of the apostles named Judas. You see what it says there? Luke says, Satan entered into Judas. Now this is certainly the most extreme of demonic possessions, <clears throat> for it's not just a demon, but Satan himself who does this. See, this occurred in the presence of the other apostles, and one of the interesting things is that as far as the other apostles saw, they didn't see anything, right? There's Judas, and he gets up, and he goes to do something. Uh, that's what they saw, and yet this is what's happening. He's, he's been, Satan has entered into him to do this. Now, Satan is a created angel who became evil and has long opposed God. You, you go back to Genesis, right? In Genesis 3.15 uh, after Satan tempted Adam and Eve to sin, and, and God says to Satan, who's in the form of a serpent at this point, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Right? That's the first little image we ever see of the gospel. It's often called the proto-gospel. Uh, and, and one of the things we know here is that, that Satan, even from an early point, ha has knowledge of who Christ is. He, he knows what, what his plan is, or he has some idea of what he thinks God's plan is, and Satan has done whatever he could to prevent it ever since. One of the most obvious, blatant places we see that is, is when Jesus first begins his public ministry. Remember, Satan uh, comes to him in the wilderness and three times uh, tempts Jesus to sin, and all three times Jesus resists. 
Uh, that's in Luke 4, right? In Luke 4.13, we are told that uh, Satan says that when Satan leaves him, he says he's leaving until he finds an opportune time. Well, here we are at the opportune time. Uh, his opportunity to try to ruin God's plan of redemption. And so Judas goes to the chief priest. Now notice, they didn't come to him saying, hey, any chance you want to betray Jesus? Uh, no, Judas actually initiates this. This betrayal is unsolicited. He goes to them. <clears throat> He's looking for a way to betray Jesus. And, and, and here's how Judas can help their evil plan, right? Judas is in the inner circle. He knows where they've been staying. He can lead the chief priest, uh, the scribes, whoever, are there at night when the, when the crowds are away and so they can capture Jesus in private. Now, Judas offers to do that. Verse 5 is, is, is one of the saddest verses, right? This is after they've made their deal um, in all the scriptures, truly, because here is this group of men. Like, get your head around this. Here is this group of men whose whole life is dedicated to shepherding God's people, to, to leading them into the worship of God. Like, they, their whole life is dedicated to God officially, and yet here they are on this, this holy day in the life of Israel, and they are plotting a murder, premeditated evil. And, and then, and this is the worst part, when they find someone who will betray Jesus, do you see how their hearts are affected? Look at verse 5. They were glad. Glad. The, the, the Greek term is often translated, you know, rejoicing. It's this huge, happy idea, right? The, they were glad and rejoicing because they have someone who is willing to portray the Son of God. They are overjoyed to commit the most atrocious crime in the history of the world. And they're glad for what? So, so what, right? I mean, you step back and think about this so that they could continue to be prestigious and respectable and wealthy, all in this temporary aspect of life. I mean, I, I can only imagine the eternal regret these men have now. So then before we move on to the next passage, there's a few lingering questions still here in the passage we're looking at, right? First of all, are we to dismiss, dismiss Judas's betrayal because he was filled by Satan? Like, it's not his fault. He, he's an innocent of some sort. Uh, absolutely not. A absolutely not. Judas is not innocent. This was not against Judas's will. He opened himself up to Satan by, by living in rebellion against Jesus to begin with. There were things that Judas could have done to prevent this. Remember, we were just talking about this. Jesus in the wilderness, and Satan comes and tempts him, and, 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 uh, and, and he resists the devil. And what happens? What does the devil do? He flees. He flees. Long before this moment, Judas could have and should have resisted the temptations of Satan, and Satan would have fled. Christian, every time we sin, you need to understand it's not Satan. We can't blame every temptation in our life on Satan. Our own evil hearts are perfectly capable of leading us into sin, but we may be tempted at times by Satan, by a demon to sin, and tempted, you know, and, and we see it in other ways. You never really know that's what's going on. Tempted to steal something that you're sure you could get away with, Right? You're tempted to, to seek out pornography for lust. You're, you're tempted to complain about the situation that God has placed you in. No, no matter what the temptation is, Christian, don't ever think that you are powerless against the temptations of the devil. You are not. James 4, 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. 
Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now Judas did the exact opposite. He did not submit his life to God or to Christ the Lord. He did not resist the devil and Satan entered into him and finally led him to betray the Lord. Which, which raises the, the question, how in the world did, did Judas get to this place of betraying his Lord? Now we kind of know who Judas is early on in our understanding of Christianity because you're growing up, you, you know this, but, but, but it really is a, a question here because after all, Judas was selected by Jesus to be an apostle, one of the twelve. Judas was in the boat when Jesus calms the storm. He watched that. Judas had a front row seat as, as Jesus fed thousands of people with a little boy's lunch. Judas was there when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Judas was an eyewitness to miracle after miracle. Judas sat under the preaching of Jesus. He went out proclaiming the kingdom of God himself with the other disciples or apostles. And so how in the world did Judas get here? Now there's a few ways to answer this question. The, the first way is this. I've told you over and over again in Luke. Uh, it's one of those things where I, I get the sense when I tell you this, you're like, yeah, you've said this before, like last week. Most Jews expected the Messiah to be this military, political leader. That's what they were going to have. He's going to be a mighty king. He's going to free us from Rome, right? These are the things they were expecting. Now, they expected a mighty earthly kingdom. And at this point, his disciples, including Judas, are beginning to see that's not what Jesus is doing. They might not understand what Jesus is doing, but they're seeing that's not what seems to be happening. And so perhaps he's become disappointed at Jesus, even bitter. In a sense, maybe, maybe he felt Jesus has betrayed, that he's been betrayed by Jesus, but by, by Jesus not living up to Judas' unbiblical expectations. Many Christians still respond to God this way. They, they profess faith in Christ. They, they come into it excited. They have this idea, this is what Jesus is going to do for me. It could be that Jesus is going to provide some physical healing or mental healing. They, that's the expectation. It could be that they think, oh, Jesus is going to make my difficult life easy from this day forward. It's all going to be wonderful. It might be that you know, the expectation is career success or financial prosperity. Or maybe they expect God to provide, you know, I just thought God would provide me an amazing spouse or an easy marriage or a fruitful ministry. Whatever the expectations, if it doesn't happen, many become bitter and angry at God and they just turn away from him. You didn't live up to the expectations uh, that I put on you that were completely unbiblical, but still, maybe that's it. And, and, and so if that's the case, Judas may be betraying Jesus because of dis his disappointment has now fermented into a deep bitterness of heart. Now another way to answer this, another reason, and, and this one is with more certainty, Judas is betraying Jesus because he was a lover of money. A lover of money. And in John 12, Mary, right? Mary took a, a large amount of this wonderful smelling, expensive, very expensive ointment, uh, and she anoints his feet, pours it on his feet, rubs it on there. And, and in John 12, 4, Judas is there, and Judas speaks up, and he says, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? What a noble guy he is, right? Uh, except for then we're told in verse 6, right after that, Judas said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used, to, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Judas has been stealing money that has been collected by the apostles. Judas was right there even when, when Jesus said in, in Luke 16, 13, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other, 
You cannot serve God and money. And yet here is Judas, right? Maybe he tried to do both. Maybe he thought that's what he was doing. But in the end, he found what Jesus said to be absolutely true. He despised the Lord and he was devoted to money. Matthew 26, 15 tells us that Judas was the one who brought up the subject of compensation when he's talking to the chief priest about this betrayal. He asked the Jewish leaders, what will you give me if I deliver Jesus over to you? And the Jewish leaders agreed to give him 30 pieces of silver. Now, there's a few methods, actually. When you, when you try to say what something was worth then to what it was worth today, it's hard. Are you translating to cash or what you can buy? All these different ways. Anyway, uh, the very highest method, meaning there's no way it's anymore, if you're the most generous translation of, of, of what it was worth then to now, it would bring you to just $20,000. Which sounds like a lot of money until you realize what's really going on here, right? Le less than a new car. It, it, what we're really seeing, though, is... Is this means Judas treasured $20,000 more than he treasured Jesus who could save his soul eternally. The story of, of Judas is absolute travesty. Travesty. I mean, all the sad stories you read in your life about people dying young or all kinds of these stories, there is no more tragic story than this of, of Judas. And today, it's, it's still shocking to me what people will do for money even now. But listen, Judas did not heed the warnings of Jesus regarding the love of money. And, and it's worth us asking, will, will we? Right? Our, our betrayal won't look anything as blatant as what we're seeing here. But, 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 but where is our, our, our value? There's this warning over and over again in Scripture, not about having money, but about loving money. Uh, and so I'll ask you, are, are you content with what the Lord has currently provided you with? Or are you content with whatever further wealth the Lord will provide you through good and godly means of earning that money? In other words, hard but honest work. Christian, do not ever compromise your integrity for the sake of gaining more money or success or possessions or worldly acceptance. Do not compromise your integrity for these things. Now to the question, when are we in danger of betraying our Lord, Philip Ryken gave a good answer. He said, he responded, when we spend more time thinking about what we do not have than praising God for what we do have. That's one. Two, when we want God to do something different for us than what God thinks is best. In other words, what he's actually doing for us. And three, and when we think we are so strong spiritually that we could never betray him at all. And so let us pursue contentment and, and gratitude. And, and let us, as we learned last week, to continue to keep watch over our hearts and to learn to repent early and, and often. Now, the last way that we can answer this question of how Judas got to this point is by observing that Judas lacked, and this is the most significant, Judas lacked saving grace. He did. And those on the outside looking in, they would probably, he convinced them, but he lacked saving grace. He, he was not genuinely redeemed. Jesus was not his heart's greatest treasure ever at any point during, during this life. Sitting under faithful preaching, growing up in a solid Christian home, it doesn't always result in a heart that treasures Christ. And so we need to constantly you know, consider our own hearts. Is Christ our treasure today? Is Jesus your greatest treasure? 
So we've got one more passage today. I promise it's shorter than the first one. Um, I'll tell you up front, this passage teaches us that even in the midst of these evil plans being made by evil men, the good and sovereign plan of God is in progress and undeterred. Uh, Let's read again, beginning in verse 7 there, and we'll read to the end of the paragraph. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. So the day of unleavened bread and the day of Passover are technically uh, these two different holidays, but they happen one after another here. Uh, The day of unleavened bread had this weird practice. They practiced it by taking a a broom and sweeping all the leaven out of the house, and it was this symbolic gesture of sweeping their sin out of the house. Uh, And then they would sacrifice a lamb, and they enjoyed the biggest feast of the year, which was Passover the following following day. Now, in a a very real sense, this was to be the last Passover. For Jesus would fulfill the Passover by becoming the sacrificial lamb who takes away the sins of his people. In one sense, another sense, Passover was a lot like our Thanksgiving meal, only in the the understanding that it required a great deal of of prep work before this this feast was to be had. As As a kid, we... We, we kind of just showed up at, you know, Grandma and Grandpa's house, and there's this big feast of food, and you never thought about how it got there. It's just there. Um, but as you grow older, you begin to see all the work that goes into it, the hours of, of people making efforts so that we can have this feast together. That's kind of what's going on here in the background, uh, that Peter and John are told to go, you two go and prepare all this stuff, and they go to do this. Now, Jesus gives them this weird instruction for finding the place. He says, behold... When you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters. And you might think, uh, well, how would you know the guy carrying the jar? After all, there's all these guys with jars, and you walk in the city, and it's filled because all these people are in town, and you're wandering around wondering who, you know, which one of these guys are we supposed to talk to? Um, And his instructions are actually pretty interesting. And the reason is that at this time, a man with a pitcher is going to stand out like crazy because... Uh, women, it was only women who actually carried water in pitchers. Men would carry their water in this, this thing called a skin. It's kind of a, more like a, a bag. Uh, and because of that, when they finally see, they're walking through this crowd, and they could see a guy, oh, there's, you know, I, I see it. I mean, you can almost imagine these two uh, apostles wandering into the city, and one of them saying, well, you know, looky there, guy with a pitcher. Uh, let's, let's go follow that guy. Uh, and, and they do, and it all happens exactly like Jesus says, um, you know, showing his sovereignty, showing his omniscience. And, and two things we, we, we learn in this uh, simple, you know, seemingly mundane paragraph here, two important things. The first is we, we learn that God calls us to obedience to his word even when we don't really understand it. They walked out of there and didn't know exactly, I, this is what he says to do, but I don't know, let's see how this turns out. Um, and we need to think about that. The Lord calls us often to, to, to do things, to obedience that we don't fully understand. Like, why has God called me to love my enemy? 
Why must sex be reserved for marriage? Why must I, I keep forgiving someone who keeps sinning against me over and over again? I don't understand. And yet the call of God to obedience there is a, a call to obedience we must obey. Uh, Jesus is our Lord and he's worthy to obey, be obeyed even when we don't understand. Now, the second thing that we learn here is pretty amazing. The, the chief priests want to arrest Jesus and give him to the Romans. They, they want to see him be killed, right? Uh, to be hung upon a cross and, and like a criminal. They, that's what they want to see happen. Judas, at this moment, he wants to gain money by betraying Jesus. That's what he wants to see. Satan thinks that this is all his own plan. I have somehow figured out a way we're going to kill this Messiah, and so God's plan can never come true. Um, he's just going to throw a big wrench into God's plans. That's what he thinks he's doing. While all that's happening, God's plan to crush the head of Satan through the crucifixion and to accomplish salvation for his chosen people is what's really going on. And the others don't know it. It doesn't look like it from the outside. It doesn't look like it to Satan. But, but God is still and always, always in control. That's the point of this little paragraph. Our Lord decided he's going to have one last meal with his apostles, that he's going to institute the Lord's Supper. Uh, and so he arranged this room, he arranged the supplies that they could meet together for that purpose. Now, Jesus' death is going to be the fulfillment of the Passover. Jesus is the, the true and the perfect sacrifice, right, which every lamb has been pointing to over the last 1,500 years leading up to this moment. And, and we're going to look at that more next week. But today, though, I, I want to finish by simply reminding you that while Judas and, and the priests and the scribes were planning for Jesus' arrest, Jesus himself was planning for his sacrifice, which would save all who would trust in him with faith. I, I want you to know, even today, the world plots, the devil tempts, but it is only our Lord who reigns. Judas and the chief priests, they meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. And, and so then, the last part here is this, that after Judas betrays Jesus, in Matthew 27, we learn what happens. He he actually goes back to the chief priest, right? He feels this guilt. I've done something wrong. I betrayed an innocent man. And he confesses his sin to those men. Those men who can do nothing for him. That can do nothing about his sin. Sadly, in grief, the betrayer, Judas, foolishly commits suicide afterwards in absolute hopelessness. But what Judas, Judas should have done is go to Jesus. And unlike the priest, Jesus could do something about his sin and guilt. We, Judas should have gone to Jesus who would have forgiven him. And we know this because Judas wasn't the only apostle to portray Jesus in some aspect. And the other apostle goes to Jesus and was forgiven and restored. And we're going to look at that in a few weeks. It's one of my favorite passages in the scripture. But, but listen, as long as you have breath, it is never too late to find forgiveness through Christ. Even the worst, most heinous sin in the history of the world is forgivable in Christ. Judas refused to take hold of the grace of God through Christ. Do not do that. Last thing, Christian, resist the devil, resist the temptations to sin, and he will flee from you. Let us, let us pray. Father, apart from the work you are doing and have done in our hearts, apart from the presence of the Holy Spirit you have filled us with, 
Apart from you, we would be willing to betray you for temporary gains in this temporary life. Please convict us of indwelling sins, and please empower us to resistance and repentance and resting in the gospel daily. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.